You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All comments are current at the time of publication. It's a podcast that's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. And this edition is presented by Rosalind English. What is a slap? It's not a slap in the face with a writ through the libel courts. It stands for strategic litigation against public participation. It's usually a lawsuit alleging defamation that is in reality brought for the purposes of intimidating, punishing or harassing the defendant for speaking out against the claimant on matters of public interest. These lawsuits started in the United States in the late 80s, but they've certainly been on the rise in the UK and in the EU, so much so that the EU has brought out a draft directive to attempt to deal with the problem. In July this year, the then Deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab, launched an urgent call for evidence in response to the challenges presented by SLAPs. SLAPs are often framed as legal cases, but they represent an abuse of law and procedure as their principal objective is stifling public debate rather than pursuit of a legal remedy. I have with me Greg Callas from the Defamation Chamber's Five Raymond Buildings to discuss this phenomenon. Greg specialises in defamation, data protection, freedom of information, privacy, confidentiality and contempt of court. Greg, many thanks for joining us on LawPod UK. Thanks so much for having me, Rosalind. So, slaps have been described as a greatest threat to freedom of expression, as can be imagined, short of a gun to the head. That's quite some threat. Can you describe in what circumstances such litigation might arise? There are plenty of people who would very much like that journalists and others didn't publish certain things about them. Many of those people, by no means all of them, are very wealthy. And some of those people, but again, by no means all of them, may be complete wrong-uns. There are some people who want to stifle the press and stop public discussion of things that they've done for entirely legitimate reasons. They feel that their reputation has been unfairly traduced, that lies about them have been told maliciously or innocently, or they want to protect their privacy. And there are some people who know categorically that they have done something wrong, but nonetheless wants to bring legal actions, even though those legal actions have no real merit, they are brought because the process itself of bringing the lawsuit is a means of applying pressure. And essentially, they want to stop journalists and others from writing and talking about them. And that latter set of legal proceedings are what in English law we always called an abusive process. There is only one object of a defamation action in England and Wales, and that is to repair your reputation. If you bring it for any other purpose, it's an abusive process. And if you bring it, especially knowing that the allegations are in fact true, that's not only an abuse, but also risks being a contempt. But there are people who will bring abusive lawsuits seeking to intimidate and bully journalists out of writing stories. And of course, it's not just defamation actions, is it? No, defamation is the traditional tort. London used to be the libel capital of the world, although I understand that Australia now considers that it's the champion to the crown. But before the Defamation Act 2013 was passed in England and Wales, London was considered the libel capital of the world, not really for its damages and for being claimant-friendly, although it certainly was claimant-friendly before the 2013 Act, but particularly for the costs. Uh, And those costs are absolutely massive. And that was the traditional way in which libelous abuse process 
was brought. Nowadays, English law has an awful lot more ways to stifle freedom of expression, um, sort of misuse of private information, equitable actions of breach of confidence, data protection in the publication context can be used. There are all sorts of mechanisms and causes of action that can be used, but it still centres around libel. People are not as scared of data protection litigation uh, as perhaps they are of a high court libel action. And I think there was an Irish case, developers trying to shut down activists by using the ancient maintenance and champerty action. Defamation never was an area of law that attracted legal aid. So litigants always had to pay for their own defence. And so there was always a risk, if you like, of imbalance of arms between the parties tending to be wealthier claimants, unless the defendant was a newspaper. So defamation had, and to a certain extent still has, quite a generous regime in terms of CFAs. So although 100% uplift on conditional fee agreements or CFAs is now gone, the 100% success fee for claimants that defendants so hated, defamation and publication claims in general still benefit from the fact that not only can you often get a CFA, but actually it's one of the few areas of law where after the event insurance, ATE insurance premia, against adverse costs is still obtainable for claimants. And that premium, which is deferred and only payable in the event of victory, is also reclaimable from defendants. Publication cases are very rare. Now, other common law jurisdictions, such as Ireland, there's a much greater problem with champerty and maintenance in terms of intermeddling in other people's causes of actions. But in England and Wales, we've been a bit more relaxed about the idea of other people funding libel actions. But the purpose is still the same. If you're funding it for the purpose, other than protecting reputation and you're using it essentially to oppress, there is still a risk, I think, of a a champerty and maintenance argument being run. Let me just turn to the Defamation Act and the safeguards against these kind of actions built into the 2013 Act. For example, there's this requirement of serious harm that claimants have to establish in the court. Now, that must be a deterrent. It's something of a deterrent. I think the 2013 Act has to be seen generally as a massive reweighting of the law. So all these cases, defamation, privacy or anything else, they're all balancing Article 10, freedom of expression on the one hand, with Article 8, right to a private and family life, but also inclusive of a right to reputation on the other. And the 2013 Act restruck the balance in defamation in a way that was massively defendant-friendly. Serious harm to reputation in Section 1 has avoided the ability of claimants to pick a relatively trivial defamatory meaning or even a serious meaning that hasn't actually caused any harm, perhaps because people didn't believe it or because it was corrected almost immediately. It's avoided a whole bunch of technical libel cases that could have run and are no longer viable. And if you take all of those away, it gives less opportunity for a claimant to bring. However, most slap cases or even cases that may or may not be slaps, but are alleged to be slaps, are over incredibly serious allegations and to enormous numbers of people. So Section 1 doesn't actually do an awful lot of work to, as it were, weed out the cases which are slaps that are brought for an abusive purpose and those which aren't. What it does is it thins the field of possible cases that a vexatious claimant could try and bring. The real things in the 2013 Act that actually operated to limit the use of slaps in some ways is the abolition of the jury in section 11 because that completely opened the way as is now effectively policy in the media and communications list that we have trials of preliminary issue ordered before a defense has even been served 
And those trials of preliminary issue generally focus only on those issues in defamation that are very important but can be resolved without any evidence at all. So the natural and ordinary meaning of the words in the defamatory statement sued upon, whether those words are fact or opinion, whether they're defamatory at common law, i.e. excluding the serious harm test, because sometimes they aren't, and sometimes if they are opinion, whether or not there's a basis for the opinion. That's a very cheap half-day to one-day trial. It's suitable in many defamation cases. And because there's no longer a right to trial by jury, the court can essentially order it in almost every case. And the point about that trial of preliminary issues is it's almost always the first major hearing or possibly the first hearing at all in a case. And it's often dispositive. Or if not dispositive, it so changes the character of the litigation that a settlement is almost guaranteed very shortly afterwards, especially if a defence hasn't been filed and offer of amends defence under the 96 Act is still available. So by getting rid of juries uh, and essentially normalising TPIs on meaning in particular, most cases, whether or not they're slaps, get dealt with and often resolved before a defence is even filed. And that's how, for instance, the Tom Burgess case, that was brought over his book was resolved. Catherine Belton case settled very shortly after a trial of preliminary issue. Even if the TPI isn't itself dispositive, it sets up a platform for often inevitable settlement. And that means that libel is no longer the guarantee of each party spending a million pounds going to trial. We, we have barely any trials in defamation anymore. And even those trials that we have, the overwhelming majority are conducted within a week. So by reducing the overall pressure of defamation litigation, particularly on institutional defendants, we've got rid of juries. There are now an awful lot of mechanisms, whether it's jurisdiction applications or TPIs on meaning, beyond the regular mechanisms of strikeout and summary judgment, that allow the court to essentially get rid of cases or get them resolved within one hearing, rather than going on for two years to trial with all the expense of pleading truth and disclosure and the like. So I think it's that context that the 2013 Act has really affected slaps. It is important to remember that slap originated in the United States, where they don't have an English rule on costs. So you almost have to show an egregious abuse of process in order for the defendant to get their costs back. So a slap is very easy in some sense in the US, because all you have to do is sue, knowing that you won't have to pay the other party's costs, even when you inevitably lose, they'll have to bear their own and that adds pressure. It's a very different dynamic in the English system, because the loser almost always has to pay the winner's costs sometimes on the indemnity basis, and that even applies to interlocutory hearings. So there's not quite the same environment in which abusive cases are now brought. English law has many more ways to deal with suspected abuse uh, and does so with much greater regularity. That's very interesting. Thank you, Greg. You refer to the Burgess case. I mean, I understand that it was stopped in its tracks, but that was a potential piece of slaps litigation, wasn't it? Could you remind us what that was all about? Tom Burgess wrote a book called Kleptopia. And I I should just, in terms of full disclosure, say he was involved with the Financial Times. And I was the editorial complaints commissioner at the Financial Times, but I never had any dealings with Mr. Burgess, and I certainly wasn't involved in this case. He wrote a book that was published by HarperCollins called Kleptopia and was sued by Eurasian National Resources Corporation Limited, which is the English company in the EARC group. And they sued him over parts of the book that alleged their complicity, including in the murder of certain individuals, in order to protect their business interests. Now, this case went to a TPI on meaning in entirely what is now the normal way. Before Mr Justice Nicklin, the judge in charge of the lists, 
And there was a determination of what the meaning of the defamatory statement was, which is entirely normal, but also an assessment as to whether or not it was defamatory at common law at all. And the reason that the case was struck out was essentially on proper application of legal principles. It wasn't defamatory of the claimant, because even in the extent to which it referred to it, a company wasn't capable of being responsible for murder. And so what you have is a case disposed of by trial of preliminary issue in a single hearing. My understanding is the case was brought by the company and the company had to pay the costs in the usual way. And as a result, this libel action against Don Burgess and Harper Collins was disposed of at the first serious hearing that took place without any reference to why it had been brought or whether it was abusive. This wasn't a sort of a strikeout or summary judgment on the grounds of abusive process, because looking into people's motive for bringing actions or even looking at the sort of the overall merits of the action can actually be quite an expensive and drawn out process. It requires evidence. A TPI on meaning, which now happens in almost every case, doesn't require evidence. In fact, no evidence can be called ordinarily on natural and ordinary meaning. So the court's just deciding pure legal questions at a trial of preliminary issues. And that's the way that case comes to an end very quickly. Now, the case has been held up as an example of a slap case. I'm not going to be saying whether I agree whether any particular case is a slap or not. I will just say I think the the term is used very widely. And I have seen even, famously, the case of Banks and Cadwallader, where the judge made an express finding that the case was not a slap. And nonetheless, campaigners afterwards said, notwithstanding the judge's ruling, we still think that this was a slap. There's huge disagreement over what qualifies and what doesn't. But I think what the Burgess case illustrates is that actually, whether or not a case is a slap, whether it's brought for improper purposes, or whatever its other characteristics, there are now mechanisms in English defamation law to dispose of even the largest, highest damages, most wide-ranging actions, very cheaply and quickly in most cases, irrespective of the general merits. And so. The question as to do we need more slap provisions in our law, I think has to be seen through the prism of what do we already have and how well is that working? And what additional problem are you trying to solve by that? I'm not saying that there isn't a further problem that couldn't be solved, but I think the question of what problem is being solved and what is not currently being catered for is a slightly more subtle question than the current debate always allows for. Which takes us sneakily to safeguards in other parts of the law outside defamation, like abusive process and vexatious litigants. Could you explain how these kind of safeguards can help against potential abusive actions? There are a certain class of litigant who becomes very attracted to libel law because they think that it gives them a case every five minutes, anytime someone says something about them they don't like. Often those are completely hopeless cases. Defamation is actually a very difficult area to do well in. The the law used to be claimant-friendly. It's not particularly claimant-friendly anymore in England and Wales. And one thing it certainly is, is hostile to people who don't know what they're doing. There's an awful lot of dabbling in defamation, but actually it's an area that's quite hostile to people dabbling in it. So a lot of cases that are brought that are truly hopeless are hopeless because they've been mispleaded. The rules around pleading in defamation are incredibly fiddly. And it's often very easy to get rid of, particularly litigant in person actions, even if once upon a time there were a possible case in there that hasn't been pleaded properly, that they've not managed to capture the exact words used in the slander, or if they've not actually set out a natural and ordinary meaning, or the meaning that they've set out just simply isn't defamatory as a matter of law. Limitation, which is very short, only a year, also catches out a lot of litigants in person. So it's a very attractive course of action to a certain type of litigant, but they often do very badly with it. 
But normally, once bitten does not mean twice shine. You see the same case being brought again and again sequentially against different defendants. For those sorts of litigants, the regular powers of the court to give strikeout summary judgment and the sorts of powers to deal with vexatious litigants in terms of civil restraint orders, sometimes extended or general civil restraint orders, are well used in the masses corridor, particularly in the media and communications list. So defamation has always been a bit more on the front foot about finding new territory for a piece of process to get rid of actions that shouldn't succeed. And the paradigm case is that we have our own unique area of abuse of process called Jamil abuse. So even where technically there was a real and substantial tort, that the person had crossed the line, there was actually an actionable tort, the scale of the damage that was going to be compensatable was so small and the potential costs of trying the action so large, the sheer disproportionality, when looked at through the prism of convention rights and the proper balance of proportional interference in convention rights, meant that essentially the, the game wasn't worth a candle. So if you were suing over a relatively trivial allegation, but the cost of the trial was going to be £2 million, the court could strike out your perfectly good cause of action as just simply not being worth the inordinate expense. Now, that's almost unique to defamation. I think maybe it's been done in intellectual property case as well. But Jamil abuse is a tool that has always been readily available. And in that sense, the 2013 Act's actually done something quite strange because it's instituted this new additional test of serious harm for every case but it's slightly difficult to see that if a claimant can get over that serious harm hurdle to get a completed tort, what chance is then that the tort is so trivial, the disproportionality of trying it will lead to it being struck out? So in one sense, the common law had developed Jamil abuse as a protection against what we might now call slaps. Parliament bringing in the 2013 Act and instituting serious harm has so raised the threshold on bringing those claims that actually Jamil abuse, which has developed at common law, has slightly fallen into abeyance, although I suppose it's still technically available. So defamation is very familiar with the general tools that the court can use to manage and avoid abusive litigation. And cost budgeting is obviously one of the ways in which the courts have tried to ensure equality of arms between the parties and to try and keep some proportionality in the cost of defamation litigation, because if those costs are too high, there's a risk of interference in Article 10. I still think that is probably the one area where there is much more work to do, which is that where you have cases where even if the defendant is not able to fully avail themselves of a public interest defence, if they had an honest, even if unreasonable belief that what they were publishing was in the public interest, and it is on a matter of public interest. So they would fall short because they hadn't done the sort of due diligence that the public interest defence requires, but they still did that honestly. Whether there should be some provision early on to at least cap the recoverable costs or somehow lower the cost of litigation to not chill discussion of matters in the public interest, even where a defence wouldn't be available. So the claimant might still win and they might still get their vindication, but at least good faith efforts to have discourse in the public interest should perhaps act, if not as a full defence, then at least as a cap on costs. From what you've told me, I understand that really there are some pretty robust safeguards built into certainly the Defamation Act against the sort of abuse of process that slaps cases involve. I just want to have a look at the situation before anything gets to court in terms of the cab rank rule, because obviously the whole campaign regarding slaps is about preventing large corporate wealthy claimants suppressing and chilling impoverished activism of one sort or another. But you as a barrister have to take a case that you have the relevant expertise in 
you can't pick and choose your clients. The cab rank rule is still the cab rank rule. How do you think that any anti-slaps amendment to our legislation would interfere with that process? I'm a, a cab ranker to the nth degree, and not just because it's a regulation, but actually it's an ethical principle. Uh, and if there's a fault in the cab rank rule, it's that it allows essentially this limitation of if you only ever charge very high fees, you can reserve yourself to only those clients who pay very high fees. I try and operate, if you like, the ethical underlying principle of the cab rank, even where people can't afford my usual fees. And the principle, as I would articulate it, is that you don't discriminate against a client on the basis of who they are or your impression of the merits on the case or how hated or reviled they are in society. Because frankly, if you're a defamation practitioner, most of the people who come to see you are hated and reviled by society because if they weren't, they wouldn't be seeking vindication of their reputation. I don't want to be complacent about what the cab rank rule requires. My bigger problem has always actually been the fact that it doesn't apply to solicitors firms engaged in contentious work. And so I've definitely been in the situation of having direct access clients, solicitors firms refusing to take that client essentially because they were very unpopular and had been involved in high profile spats. So my perspective is one of very much supporting not only the cab rank rule, but actually an expanded view of it as an ethical principle. Therefore, I have a problem with any proposal that would essentially seek to make the lawyer the gatekeeper of whether or not an action should be proposed in pre-action protocol letters or indeed brought to court. Lawyers often have to act on behalf of a client against public interest, requiring somehow claimant lawyers to apply a sort of a public interest filter on the cases that they bring. To my mind, would be entirely retrograde and isn't necessary at least not necessary for those cases that are issued and brought before the courts, because then it's for the court to decide where the balance of public interest versus private interest lies. It's not for the lawyers to do that. So anything that impinges on this, to my mind, could only be applicable before something reaches court. Uh, And this is the question as to whether or not the SRA has been right to intervene in, for instance, pre-action protocol letters. There, There are some absolutely awful letters written in litigation in all areas of the law. Nobody likes being threatened with being sued. If you're a newspaper, it's something of an occupational hazard, and nobody thinks that there should be threats or harassment in those letters. But the mere fact of being threatened with being sued is part of the business of being a newspaper or an investigative journalist. And so I'd be very nervous about the regulators thinking they should start to step in, imposing new duties in that area when what essentially the only thing that would solve that is some sort of immunity from suit, which obviously wouldn't be compatible with the proper balance of convention rights. Tying up all these ends, and from what you've said throughout the interview, I get the impression that you don't think that we need English law, it needs any separate statutory safeguard or by way of amendment to the Defamation Act, the 2013 Act, that we have enough institutionally and in our common law and in our statute law to guard against these kind of cases? I think the tools are mostly there. Strike out summary judgment, including for abusive process in all the manifold forms that libel law allows for, does a lot. The reforms to the Defamation Act did a great deal. Cost budgeting does something. Uh, I think there probably wouldn't be anything wrong with regulators stepping in where allegations of fraud or malice are made without a proper basis or overly aggressive pre-action letters. I mean, if it's already in breach of the rules, I've got no problem that being enforced. I'd also like to see a little more enforcement on cab rank rule. So I, I don't want to say that there's not a problem, but there's no problem that's been articulated to my mind that we don't have the tools to deal with. 
There are two particular improvements to the tools I think we really do need to think about. And they both relate to costs, because frankly, and it would be a wonderful world for barristers who want to do more trials, if every defamation case was capped at, I don't know, 100, 150,000 pounds in costs, could not cost more than that. That was the most ever recoverable. Some defendants would be delighted. I have to say, I suspect that institutional defendants, such as newspapers, might need to get a little bit worried about that, because at the moment, the only people who can afford to seriously sue them are very wealthy people, because nobody can risk the adverse costs. If you capped costs, institutional defendants like newspapers and broadcasters might find that there's a much larger pool of people who would be suing them, because there just wouldn't be the adverse cost risk. But generally speaking, cost control is seen as a, something that defendants want. There is more that we could do on that. And I don't think there would be a problem tacking that to some idea that public participation, public debate is important, even if it doesn't meet the exacting standards of the Section 4 public interest defence. If it's honestly done for the purposes of stimulating public debate and the person honestly believed it was true, and it is on a matter of public interest, having not a defence, not even a partial defence, but some limitation on costs at a relatively early stage might be an idea. The other thing is that the difficulty with all of the major substantive defences in defamation, so truth under Section 2 of the Act, honest opinion under Section 3, public interest under Section 4, heavy and expensive to plead, entirely fact-dependent, really. There's not that much dispute about the law now it's been codified. Uh, And they're expensive to try. And the problem with that is, is that they are, because they are so fact-dependent, they are often not amenable to summary judgment, which requires a, a case to be a claim would have to have no real prospect success against the defence. That's an incredibly exacting test. Summary judgment on those three defences is almost unheard of. By the same token, taking it all the way to trial with the full disclosure, witness statements, evidence trial is incredibly expensive. I think there's got to be a question, should there be something between initial summary judgment on those defences and ultimate trial on the balance of probabilities on those defences? And the answer might be to have some sort of interlocutory mechanism So a little like we have jurisdiction applications, where the standard of proof is actually the much more flexible early stages, we don't have all the evidence yet standard, which is the good arguable case. Who has the better of the argument? And essentially, if you had an interlocutory, almost like early neutral evaluation by a judge, looking at the defence, essentially saying, is it more likely or not to succeed at trial once we've got all of the evidence? And if the court took the view that the defence was more likely than not to succeed, albeit that lower standard, that early interlocutory stage, that there might be some sort of automatic cost capping or automatic security for costs. So there are probably things that you can do to limit cases that survive the initial skirmishes, essentially say to claimants, you only get to take this forward if you're very confident. And a judge has said on early neutral evaluation, defender probably has a good chance on this defence. So are you really prepared to put up security for costs? And that would perhaps thin out those who are bringing actions purely to harass and intimidate defendants. It really would reduce it to those claimants who are absolutely gung-ho that they were going to succeed and are bringing it for the right reasons. Now, that's not ideal, but there are always going to be abusive cases brought for the wrong reasons. The question is, does the court have the tools to deal with them in an equitable way? And I think those things would probably help. So there are two small measures that I think would practically do more good and would avoid the risk, which I think the anti-slap campaign has been a little bit deaf to, that people could have absolutely viable and brought for the right reasons cases 
chucked out of court simply because they had what the campaign calls the hallmarks of abuse, i.e. they have perfectly properly sued an individual defendant, which can be appropriate in certain circumstances, or they happen to be very wealthy, or they happen to be bad people in other areas of their life, or they happen to have the misfortune to be foreign litigants who are bringing their case to England and Wales. There is a real risk of good cases properly brought being excluded by too expansive a definition of slap. So I think the reforms proposed are less appropriate, and the ones that I'm suggesting probably would have more of a practical impact while still maintaining the proper balance. I think that very much concludes all the issues we had to raise on this subject. Thank you so much, Greg, for bringing your considerable expertise to bear on this issue. Thank you so much for having me. And this episode will be accompanied by a post on our UK Human Rights blog, and with references to the relevant legislation and cases. And you can always follow us, LawPod UK, on Twitter. LawPod UK is presented by Rosalind English and produced by One Crown Office Row.